Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Ezra Klein Show. This is an episode I'm very excited to have gotten to do and to bring to you. Jonathan Cohen from The Huffington Post is one of my favorite journalists. He has been for a decade now. When I was but a, a cub trying to learn how to cover healthcare, John is the guy I wanted to be like. He's a brilliant policy reporter, a brilliant mind, a really generous, gentle human being, too. He, he comes to things with a lot of decency, which is not always true in our, our, our political media complex right now. And John wrote a piece recently that, that spoke to something that I think has gotten much too little coverage in this election. What is Hillary Clinton's policy agenda? How is it being formulated? Who is behind it? We, we spend so much time staring at the glowing orange orb that is Donald Trump and freaking out about the latest twist and turn in the election that the actual policies of the likely next president of the United States have been, I think, pretty poorly vetted and pretty poorly understood. So John and I go deep into that, into Obamacare, into gender dynamics of what kinds of big policy theories work. We talk a lot about the way Clinton is able to communicate her vision or not communicate her vision, the way that her ideas about family and paid family leave might actually add up to an economic policy in a way that is not really being articulated, but I think is worth giving some serious consideration to. It's a lot of fun, and I certainly learned a lot talking to John about where the Clinton campaign actually is on policy and what their internal process looks like, which is, I think, very important because a lot of that process is going to form the foundation for what she does in the White House if indeed she's elected. As always, please share this episode of The Ezra Klein Show. Put it on the Facebooks. Put it on the Twitters. Check out my other podcast, The Weeds, if you like this policy-driven episode of this show. You will love The Weeds. And finally, keep your guest requests and feedback coming at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. All that said, here is Jonathan Cohn. Jonathan Cohn, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. It's going well. You know, here here in uh, in uh, the land, uh, I'm in an actual swing state, which is very exciting. Although some people say Michigan isn't actually a swing state, I guess. Are you seeing Trump ads? Uh, we're seeing a little Trump ads. We've seen Trump ads. We've seen Clinton ads. Of course, you know, the sad thing is I actually watch more national cable than local. So I'm actually seeing probably the same ads that you are more or less. And actually, the mostly when I see the local ads, it's because, you know, you may remember I'm a Boston Red Sox fan. So I'd watch the Boston broadcast. So I'd see the New Hampshire ads. So I actually don't probably have as good a local sense as I should. I'm starting to wonder if you really are a good representative of the median voter. <laughs> So I'm, I've been stoked to talk to you because we covered Obamacare together and covered a lot of policy topics together. And I think like doing a similar kind of coverage. And it has been hard to take time and space and urgency to execute that kind of coverage this year. This has felt like an election in many ways that uh, defies an effort to, to cover through policy. But so I wanted in this conversation, at least for the first part of it, to, to do two things. One is 
to actually talk about the policy platforms in the election. And two is to actually talk about Hillary Clinton's platform, because Donald Trump is such a shiny object, but she's very likely going to be our next president, if you believe the polls. And you've done some really great work diving very, very deep into her policy operation, how it works, who is who is part of it, what it's adding up to. So I, I would love to start there. Give me your sense, insofar as there is a articul- articulatable vision at the core of it, what, what is Hillary Clinton's big theory here? Right. So, you know, you're asking a great question, which is how do you summarize Hillary Clinton's platform, basically? And it's a great question because you can't. You, you can. Damn it, John. Uh, I know, I know, I know. I'm supposed to. And, and, you know, I think this is a problem. And, you know, this has been a problem for her and her campaign. They don't have a single unifying theory, a substantive theory. You know, you know Donald Trump is going to make America great, right? You know, Bernie Sanders was talking about, you know, the rigged system. He's going to fix the rigged system. Well, you know, there's nothing like that for Clinton. You know, she's got this slogan, stronger together, which is, you know, a perfectly fine slogan. I'm, you know, whatever I'm people, t- I'm not great expert at what's a good slogan and what's not, but you know, that's a perfectly fine slogan. And actually it does have some, you know, you can sort of see how most of what she's proposing does, you know, have, there's a theme to it of inclusiveness and making sure that everybody gets a chance and everybody is a part of American society. But the truth is Hillary Clinton's theory, and this is something, you know, not to be flattering you here, but you wrote about in, in your piece about Hillary Clinton is her theory is that we can solve problems and that that's how you, that progress is, all, you know, successful presidency is about looking at the country, seeing what's wrong with the country, studying the issues, talking to people who understand the issues and coming up with the best set of solutions that you can actually get through the American political system. And so you look at her platform and it is basically, there is a a, a broad sense of, well, how do we make this a better society? And, and of course, there is, I mean, I said there's no theme, but there is an identity to it. She is progressive. She is a progressive Democrat. Um, she is, you know, by, I think, any reasonable definition of pro- progressive Democrat. That doesn't mean she's as progressive as Bernie Sanders or even Elizabeth Warren. Um, but it also means she's not, you know, somebody who's just floating out there with no political identity. And she's not... You know, it's, I think there's an image of her out there as someone who's relatively conservative. That's not true either. Let, let me let me stop you for one second because yeah. I actually really want to do do this l- navigational pinpointing for a minute because I, I do think it's something that has people get very confused about with Hillary Clinton. I heard a joke from from somebody who worked with her who said, "I'm old enough to remember when the problem with Hillary Clinton was that she was a radical feminist socialist." In the 90s, she was considered the liberal end of the Bill Clinton White House when sort of poverty advocates and, and, and folks who wanted the White House to move to the left needed an advocate. They often went to her. I'm curious if this sounds correct to you. That It seems to me to have happened is that Hillary Clinton has a quite liberal domestic and economic policy approach and is more hawkish on, on foreign policy, certainly than the, than the post-Iraq war Democratic Party is. And a lot of people, I think, have a very strong impression of what her politics are that is driven a little bit by the Iraq war because we have a tendency to just say people are liberal or conservative. But Clinton's foreign policy and her domestic economic policy put her on different points on the left-right spectrum. And it, and it feels to me we've had trouble disaggregating those and, and sort of seeing where she's more liberal and where she's less liberal instead of rolled it up into one impression of her. Yeah, I actually, I think that's exactly right. 
and and certainly w- with the you know my study for I mean I'm a domestic policy guy so that's really where I focus and that's when I talk about her as a progressive I'm thinking of her much more in terms of her domestic agenda and I think on her foreign policy agenda she is more hawkish now you know obviously you know what you call progressive versus non-progressive in foreign policy is a little complicated totally you know right I mean you know I think she would say her advisors would say that, yes, she's probably a little quicker to intervene and a quicker to act, but she also is somebody who would do so for the sake of human rights, say, more quickly than a conservative would. And, you know, what do you what, what do you call that, right? Is that progressive? Is that interventionist? Are they both? Is it neither? So, but, you know, putting that aside, I think you're right. And this also speaks to how changing times have affected how people see Clinton. I mean, for someone like me, I mean, one of the fun things and interesting things about writing about Clinton for me is that her entry into um, national political life, just from a timing standpoint, tracks mine exactly. Um, Not to date myself here, but, you know, when I was just out of college and first starting to write journalism professionally, and I I was working on politics, um, was in the early 90s. It was right in the 1992 election. And so I remember, you know, when that person told you, I remember when Hillary Clinton was a radical feminist. I remember me, Jonathan Cohn. I definitely remember when she was a radical feminist. And, you know, that is my frame of reference. I remember her getting attacked because, you know, oh, my gosh, she had a career. Oh, my gosh. You know, she kept her maiden name. Can you imagine? You know, I mean, in fact, when I did this article, I went back and read a lot of that. And, and, you know, you've read about that and you guys have written about that. And there was also that great uh, Rebecca Traster article, yeah. you remember from New York Magazine that kind of went into this. You got to go back and read those articles. It's just stunning the extent to which, you know, she was seen as not just politically to the left, but just this this alien, dangerous force that was going to break up the American family and change gender roles. And one of the things that's happened is that, you know, that was a long time ago. I'm, I'm kind of old now. And a lot of those changes now, I mean, they're still controversial and, you know, in all kinds of ways, we still have problems with gender in this country. But the fact is people don't really blink anymore at the idea that, you know, a woman would have a career. To be very clear, I mean, there's, you know, all kinds of, you know, subtle discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, in general, you know, no one gets, you know, so, you know, we don't see Michelle Obama being, you know, sort of looked at skeptically because, you know, she was a lawyer, you know, before she became first lady. But this was a big deal for Hillary Clinton. But, you know, a lot of people sort of who, if you're not that old, and if you didn't, if you don't have those firsthand memories, you sort of, what do you know about Hillary Clinton? Well, you know, maybe you sort of know her first as the person who ran in 2008. And what was the 2008 campaign about? It's just what you were talking about, right? Hillary Clinton was the one who voted for the Iraq war. And this campaign, this presidential campaign, 2016, this has been reinforced, right? Because now it's all about Wall Street, which is an issue where, you know, relative to other issues, historically, she maybe has not been as, you know, she's not been as progressive as Bernie Sanders. Senator from New York. Right. And she was the senator from New York. And, you know, and there's a record there, right? I mean, you know, there's the story of the bankruptcy bill when she was senator. And so people, you know, the, the sort of frame of reference of the last 10 years, let's say, is one that the sort of prominent issues really do sort of mark her, you know, as a more conservative figure. But if you have that long view and you look back where she was in the early 90s and, you know, at that time was, was very progressive and was at that time articulating values that even today are still very progressive. I mean, she has, you know, if you kind of go back through her life, one of the common threads you'll find is that she really does care about inequality. And, and she has a particularly strong, strong interest in helping low-income children 
and helping women. And I actually think there is actually an interesting gender angle to all this. Maybe we can talk about, you know, in a minute or two about like why I think that doesn't get the attention today that it should and why that doesn't why, why people don't count that in the ledger as a sign of her being progressive. Can we actually talk about that for a minute? Because I think this is a very, a very important wrinkle in this and, and something that I've been thinking about a lot. So when we began this conversation, we were talking about whether there is a sort of additive philosophy here, whether there's something you can look at and say in a sentence and then say, yes, that is what Hillary Clinton is doing. And you mentioned, you know, Bernie Sanders and the rigged system. And and I think about this sometimes and, and I try to ask myself, who are the candidates who it felt to me like they had that? There was something in Barack Obama's message last time that was clearer, but it wasn't like change the system was shot through every policy he had. Right. He, he wanted change he can believe in. And there was a kind of good government reformist bring people together NIST to it. But he just had a lot of policies. Some were a little bit less liberal than Clinton, some a little bit more. And yet there's a feeling of coherence there. And if you had asked me at the beginning of this election what Clinton was going to do to bring that feeling of coherence, I actually thought it was going to be around inclusive policies, particularly for women and children. And, you know, she has paid maternity leave and, and changes paid sick leave and changes to scheduling. And it actually seemed to me that as a country, given how much the family unit has changed in, say, 40 years, it would make sense to have a campaign where at least one of the very core ideas was that we need to change the economy and change government policy to make modern fam- like the, the modern family structures we have more viable. And somehow that never that that never broke through. And I I don't know is it that I am not listening for it correctly, or that they are not doing it, or that their policies do not support it. But that felt to me like the way Clinton was going to create a policy message that also made her candidacy feel more historic to people. Right, connected her candidacy to her her policies and to her sense of the moment here. And then yeah, you just she has a bunch of those policies, but people don't seem to feel they add up to anything. So do you think that's a gender thing? Do you think we just have trouble with a message that is uh, just a little bit more gendered in its dimension and just sort of refuse to see that as it? Or do you think that's them? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a couple of things going on here. And and it's funny, I had the I, I also, you know, when I thought about, OK, what is a Hillary Clinton campaign going to look like? I thought about that had sort of a very, you know, basically the same thought. You know, in part, you may remember there was all this talk. Do you remember there were all these articles like, you know, what is liberalism's next big thing? Because, you know, right? Because, you know, they've done health care and, you know, what are they going to do? Which we should talk about at some point. (laughs) Right, right. You know, and of course. (laughs) A lot to say about health care. Yeah, right. I mean, they're not really done with health care by any stretch of the imagination. But whatever, you know, there was this big step taken. And what was, and, and to me, I've thought for a while, you've thought, you know, I think a lot of us have thought and, and, and it's, you know, there's a lot of churning kind of just below the surface in the world of people who think about policy about this, that, you know, the next big issue was this sort of work and family. And it's a classic, I mean, it, it, it sort of fits, right? Because if you think about what, why, you know, if you think about the sort of stages of sort of, you know, the social welfare state, what is the social welfare state? What is it there for? Why does it exist? Well, it's basically saying, our economy doesn't provide everything that people need, and there are sort of social needs at home and for, for health, et cetera. So dealing with healthcare was, you know, a logical step because, gosh, you know, we used to count on the workplace and the way our society was organized, you know, provided people with healthcare, but now it doesn't anymore. So the government needs to step in and kind of take on that role. And it was what they did with Social Security right back in the 30s. So this was an obvious area because, okay, here we have a situation where the nature of the American family has gone undergone this enormous radical change in the last 30 years. We sort of assumed 
women would be responsible for, for home and for caregiving. And now that is not possible anymore. Well, what do you do about that? And so it was, and you know, and liberals have answers, right? I mean, they say, okay, what we need to do is we need to make sure that people have enough money to take care of kids because, you know, kids are an investment in our future. Right? I mean, that's like a cliche, but it's actually true. And we need to sort of make sure that people can stay home with their kids or with their elderly relatives. And we need to help them pay for childcare, et cetera. So this seemed like the place to go. And, you know, Hillary Clinton, I mean, there's one, you know, you can go back. I, I always remind people, you, know, you can go back and look in the you know, 1980s, 1990s. She was working on these issues back then. She wrote this great op-ed in the New York Times in 1990 about how the French childcare system was awesome. And, you know, we should sort of not, maybe not copy it, but, you know, it's sort of proof that we should be doing something different. And this is, you know, what, 30, you know. I'm not quite 25 years. I can't do math anymore. But, you know, a quarter century ago. And then it didn't happen. I mean, it, it has happened in the sense that, you know, if you read, you know, her speeches, you know, you go back to the Roosevelt Island announcement speech she gave. She talks a lot about it and she always talks about it in her town halls and speeches. It's not like she's ignoring it. But the issue hasn't really become salient in this election. And now I'm sort of coming around to finally answering the question you pose of why. One reason, I think, is that the, just the focus has been elsewhere. Uh, to the extent it's been about issues, it's really been focused on a more traditional economic growth slash trade slash inequality focus, in part because of you know, who was running, Trump, Sanders, and, and that's where this has played out. And then obviously a big part of it is, and this is a whole separate conversation, just with Trump and the race, we're not you know, talking about policy. We're talking about, well, you know, one of the parties has nominated somebody basically unfit for office. And so that just moves it all away from, from policy. But where I do think the gender angle works into this, and I think this gets back to the question of how progressive Hillary Clinton is, is that, you know, if you look at Hillary Clinton's issue profiles, I mean, like anybody else, she's complicated, right? She's more progressive in some areas, less progressive in others. She's got her principles. She's got the places where she bends her principles. She's an opportunist sometimes. Sometimes she's a crusader, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, when we talk about so-and-so is progressive, so-and-so isn't progressive, we're basically looking at the totality of their positions and sort of, you know, picking what we think is most important. and. The thing is, if you're looking at Hillary Clinton, where is she most progressive? I would say it was on these issues. I mean, this is a this is an issue that, like I said, this goes back to the you know her entire career. She's been working on these issues. It's clearly very dear to her heart. It's clearly something she cares about. She's never really bent on it, and it's something where you know she's determined to move the ball forward. But I think that this is an issue that, even though I think there's a lot of people who don't take it that seriously as an issue. And I think there is a gender component. I think there's still, for a lot of men, they sort of feel like, you know, even progressive men who will pay lip service to, yeah, we should have better work family. Yeah, we should give money to people for childcare. Yeah, we should have better parental leave. You know, it doesn't feel that personal to them. And so they just don't think it's that important. Where I think for a lot of women, it does seem more important and it should be more important. You know, this is a huge bread and butter issue. It makes such a difference in people's lives. And, I, you know, I can say that from personal experience. You know, I'm a, I'm a working dad with a working spouse and two kids. And believe me, like, this has a huge, huge effect on my daily life, just like it does for every working, uh, set of, you know, working parent out there. And so I think it, because of our, I think gender has a lot to do with the fact that this doesn't count as much on her, you know, on her ledger as it would for another, you know, other issues would. One of the ways that I think this conversation does go awry and is a bit gendered, we, I think, do not have a track record uh, in, in this country, certainly in, in recent decades, 
of preferring to think about policies in terms of the lives they will make better rather than the sort of economic gains we will get as a, as a country. So when they sell Obamacare, they really spend all their time almost selling. It'll make things cheaper. It'll bend the cost curve. They spend a lot less time talking about poor people who didn't have health insurance who will have it now. And one thing I think is interesting about the discourse around the package of policies that I would sort of roughly say include paid family leave, better sick day policy, better scheduling policy, and various kinds of child care credits and, and subsidies. And, and there are more in, in the basket, but those are the ones that I would think of first, is I think they have developed a discourse in, in American politics as kind of nice things. A lot of people are for them, but they don't see them as economic imperatives. They're not, they're not the hard-nosed part of economic policy. And something that I think is fascinating about that is it doesn't seem to me to be true. So... We can argue about what is the right direction to take policy to to achieve this end. But one of the things that has been a little bit unusual about the past, I don't know, five years in the economy is we've become very, very focused on labor force participation. And I, I think to some degree, we've been fo- become focused on it in ways that are a little bit fallacious. We are almost like looking for a measure that shows that the economy is bad, even as it gets better. But even so, we, there has been a real drop in labor force participation. It is beyond what you would have predicted just based on demographics. But what's fascinating is that I think people have been open to freaking out about men dropping out of the labor force. But there's probably a lot more opportunity if you just want to be moving the overall measure up in bringing women who have children back into the labor force. And so in that way, it does feel to me that Clinton oddly has an economic vision that is very connected to a particular concern we've had in recent years, which is a lower share of the working age population actually looking for work or working and is connected to some big sort of themes about where the economy could go. But that conversation hasn't been had because I think a lot of these get coded as these are humane, nice policies for poor people, not actually these are policies meant to unlock economic potential among a a part of the population that right now has to make extremely sharp trade-offs between participating in the economy and raising a family. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And, you know, this has been a focus. There's a group of economists out there who work on this stuff and have been pushing this line. And actually, the White House, the Obama White House, in its second term, you probably know this because you pay attention to these things. And like I do, you know, the, the Council on Economic Advisors put out a whole series of reports about this very issue, right, about how the sort of economic potential you can unleash by improving labor force participation by women and the role that sort of better work family policies can play in that. Now, this is not a coincidence. I mean, one reason this is happening is that at the time, the person who produced most of these reports is an economist named Betsy Stevenson, who is one of the economists who works on this. And this is sort of, this is something she's been championing for a long time. She's an economist. She did her, you know, two years at CEA. She's at University of Michigan now. And she sort of talks herself blue in the face, making this point that there's an economic imperative to this, you know, and an economic bonus to this, which is that if we make it possible for women to join the workforce, they will. And actually, at this point, you know, and this, you can say this is good or bad or neither, but they actually have more skills than men do. And the way she puts it, she would say it is something along the lines of, look, if we are not providing good work family supports, we are leaving this talent on the sidelines. We are losing growth. These are people who have a lot to contribute in the workforce and are not because 
they can't afford to work. Now, you, you want to be careful how you say that, and she would be careful on how to say that. That's not to say that, like, you know, raising children is not productive. On the contrary, it's extremely important and extremely productive. And in fact, part of what needs to change, I think, if you get into this, is that we need to sort of recognize that there's actually a monetary value if you want to assign it, or you don't have to assign a dollar value to it, but there's an important value economically to sort of making sure kids are brought up with the supports they need. But then again, you know, that you sort of follow the logic of that and you still end up in the same place, which is that as a society, we should be putting far more resources into helping families raise children and allowing working parents to make the choice to go into the workforce if that's what they want to do. We should be putting those resources in there, not just because it's a nice thing to do and not just because it would be, you know, it would you know make life easier for people, but actually it would make the economy grow faster. You know, we, 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 would, we would be more productive overall as a society. What do you think is Hillary Clinton's top actual issue? Because I think that one reason people have trouble accessing something to hold on to within the blizzard of however many 34 or 45 different policy plans she's put out in this campaign is that obviously the president can't do anything. So it really matters where their heart is. And, and you can be misled here because I think a lot of us, for instance, thought Obama's interest laid in climate change, not health care. And then he came in and, and, and front loaded health care. But I think that Clinton has a tendency to give everything equal weight. You brought up that Roosevelt Island speech, which was her campaign announcement speech. I think you go back to that. And that is everything wrong with Hillary Clinton's speech making in one speech. I think that was a speech where she was introducing her campaign and there was just no real thematic in it that, that made any sense. It was just a million policies strung one after the other. So with Obama, I think people felt he was really against the Iraq war and he's really passionate about changing how politics worked. I think with Bernie Sanders, people felt you know that he's really passionate about money and politics and, and the billionaires. And then next to that, he's very big into free college and single payer health care. I think with Donald Trump, he's done this, I think, quite brilliantly. He has like no policies out. He, I think he's seven on his website and two of them are, are repeated. But <laughs> you do know that he's thinks about immigration, right? That, that he is he has signaled what is the thing that he will give prioritization to. And that is something that I feel even having covered Clinton now for some time that I really couldn't tell you with any confidence. What is it that she will go in and will order her thinking? Do you feel like you have a sense of that? Yeah, no, I, I don't either, actually. I mean, I can tell you what she's going to do, like what her priorities will be when she governs. I mean, she's said, right? I mean, she's been very clear publicly, and her advisors say this as well when you interview them. First two bills, right? She's going to do a giant infrastructure bill, which she thinks will help the economy and along the way, you know, also help repair our infrastructure, which we desperately need. And then she's going to try to do immigration reform. So, I mean, she has signaled that. And she's got a sort of, you know, set of executive orders on various things she's going to do. So, I mean, in that sense, you know, she's told us what she's going to do first. But no, I could not tell you what her single most important issue is. I don't know what it is. I mean, if you, if I had to bet, you know, if I said just, you know, based on talking to people who have spent a long time with her and reading what she's, you know, said and written herself over the years, you know, I suspect actually this basket of issues on work and family and bringing American society up to speed and acknowledging that the family has changed. I guess maybe that would be, you know, that might be most important. Although I might say actually even more narrow than that, I think she's particularly focused again on young children, which feels very generic. Everybody likes, you know, young children and, you know, everyone wants to help young children from low-income communities do better. I don't, even Donald Trump wants to do that, or at least says he wants to do that. But, you know, with her, there's like a history, and I think that is kind of 
deep in her bones. That's what she wants to do. But there is no, you're right. I mean, I think she is all over the place in some ways. And that's just who she is. I mean, I think, again, she's a little bit of a technocrat. You know, I think she's someone who has a basic, I think her values are very clear. I think she's got a very good sense of what, you know, right and wrong in her head and what she would like society to look like. But there's no one issue that's, you know, she's hanging her hat on. There's no one cause. Ironically, I would say we all, I think a lot of us have spent a lot of time sort of talking about the fact with some mixture of sadness and surprise that the extent to which this has become a campaign solely about Donald Trump. You're either for Trump or against Trump, right? You know, you yeah. know that's the most important issue here, you know, for good reasons, for bad reasons. In some ways, though, actually, I will say for Hillary Clinton, it does actually, that does actually give her more of an identity in the sense that I do think she is an anti-Trump. I mean, I think that, you know, insofar as I think of Donald Trump as someone who likes to look at American society and divide it up into my people and the other people, right? I mean, that's basically, you know, it's, it's us and them, right? I mean, that's what Donald Trump's all about, you know, us white people born in this country, and then there's sort of, you know, everybody else. Whereas I think Hillary Clinton is the exact opposite of that. I mean, I think this is where, you know, she's got this slogan, Stronger Together, that I was sort of gently mocking before. But I actually think that's, I do think that is what she believes. I do think she has a kind of passionate belief that making American society inclusive is important. And that, you know, she looks at, you know, we've talked, and we've all talked about how America is changing and becoming a more diverse nation. And I think of Donald Trump as someone, you know, sort of standing there saying, stop, we don't yeah. like this, go back. And, you know, and the people support him to an degree. And I think she is someone who says, yes, that's wonderful. This is great. This is what I want America to look like. And I think, you know, that I would say, you know, if I had to sort of say, what is Hillary Clinton about? I'd say that's what she's about. There are points of political philosophy that we are, are, are very used to seeing as the conflict points in American politics, right? What you think about the rich and how much they pay in taxes or what you think about government's duty to the poor. There's a lot that has been normalized. And one thing that I think is interesting about Trump is that he has actually reoriented the debate around values that because elites of both parties tend to share them, at least to some degree, have been less present as points of high level conflict. So tolerance, pluralism, a kind of openness and cosmopolitanism. These are things that I think are, are actually quite important and have structured political fights in every country in the world sort of forever. But the Republican and Democratic parties more or less did a good job of keeping them from structuring fights in America, at least in recent years. And something that Trump, I think, has really done is made that a zone of conflict. I think that's why so many folks who wanted that to be a zone of conflict, who did have ideas on that that were being suppressed, flocked to him. Trump coming out and being willing to say such crazy things and absorb the media backlash and double down, in some ways, is a proof of concept that here is this guy who will finally, even if, it's a, even if it's not always the thing you wish he was saying, he will say the things that people have been keeping out of the national conversation. And, and Clinton, you know, on, on the other side, it's in a funny way allowed her to run much more explicitly. And, and this, I think, ended up as an interesting part of her primary campaign, too, as a candidate of a diverse, rising coalition. Now, there are parts of that coalition that don't like her that much, right? She very much struggles among young people. But it has been actually very natural within her constituency, given how much she relied on support from non-white communities in the primary, and given just how she thinks about politics, she's been able to front load a set of values that I actually think are the place where she is most unified with the liberal base, as opposed to on, on foreign policy and some forms of economic policy where, where she has much sharper divisions. Yeah, I know. I think that's absolutely right. And 
you know, for me, and, and, and this again may just be a function of my, my age and when I sort of started covering politics, but I, I, I keep going back to people what, listening to this, John, are going to think you're a hundred. You I know, <laughs> I know. Right, right. No, I'm an old but, you know, again, I sort of date my sort of political, my, my political baseline for judging things is always like the early 90s, the late 80s, early 90s, where the Democratic Party was. And, and I sort of compare the Democratic Party today to where it was then. I compare American politics today to where it was then. And it's just such a stunning difference. And this speaks to a lot of the controversies that did trip her up during the primaries. But, you know, during the early 1990s, you know, the sort of Democrats were desperate, right? I mean, they'd lost five of the last six elections. And there was sort of talk of a permanent Republican majority. And, and the sort of understanding was Democrats had really sort of marginalized themselves by alienating kind of, you know, white voters, particularly kind of working class white voters. And again, you know, I live in Michigan, the sort of prototype of, you know, where the Reagan Democrats who live in the northern suburbs of Detroit, Macomb County, working in the auto plants who basically were fed up with welfare, fed up with crime, believed, you know, to put it bluntly, that Democrats were too nice to black people. And Democrats reacted, Bill Clinton reacted partly by trying to, you know, do this kind of two-step dance where on the one hand, he still, you know, was in favor of liberal policies, but on the other hand, looked to distance himself wherever he could. There was a famous, you know, the famous Sister Soldier episode where he kind of made a point of calling out a rapper uh, in the 1992 campaign. The worst possible thing you could be in 1992 as a Democrat and a national politician was somebody who, you know, appeared the slightest bit soft on crime, somebody who embraced the civil rights community too closely. And back then, the sort of question of politics of immigration and the place of the Latino community in the United States was not really a front burner issue. But you can imagine if it had been back then, it would have been part of the same basket. You know, you don't want to seem too pro-immigration. You don't want to seem too close with the Latino community. That would be, you know, that would be problematic. And here we are now. And Hillary Clinton is, in fact, you know, she's championing reforming criminal justice, getting rid of mandatory minimums, embracing immigration. She's running a campaign very proudly on the theme of inclusiveness, on diversity. You know, we, we're having this debate now, as you say, that we really didn't have openly. I mean, it was there, but we didn't have it quite so openly in the last election, the last few elections, over whether this is the kind of country we want to be. And I have to say, as someone watching this, I find it both, it's a little bit terrifying to have that debate, if that makes sense, because you kind of worry how it's going to turn out. This is what I think a lot of people find scary about Trump candidacy. One of the things that you did in your piece was you really outlined the structure, and it's a really big, sprawling structure, of her policy apparatus, which almost looks more like the policy apparatus of a White House than a, than a typical campaign. I mean, it is so, it's so thick in terms of who she's relying on. But who would you say you know, are the three or four people that folks need to know to understand where Hillary Clinton's policy is coming from? Who do, who do you think are the three or four key aides who end up both channeling and structuring their candidates, what the candidate sees and, and, and where the candidate comes out? Right. So this is going to be, and of course, classic answer that sort of tells you anything you need about the campaign. I'm not sure I can limit it to three. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. It's many. 107. Right. So the first thing I would say, and this is because I actually, it was as someone who reports and edits these stories, you'll appreciate this. This was sort of my editors were constantly asking me the same question. You have to kind of pick out the sort of three or four people. And so I was constantly asking people around Hillary Clinton, who are the three or four people? And the answer, the first answer every single person said was, well, you have to start with Hillary Clinton. It's funny, you know, she's deeply knowledgeable about policy. If you look at the last two Democratic presidents, right, you know, the current one, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, obviously they really were very 
deep into policy. They cared about policy. Um, and in fact, pretty much every Democratic nominee, Al Gore was a, was a serious policy wonk. John Kerry, you know, he certainly knows policy also. I talked to people who know all these people, and they said, you know, all the, the Democrats, for better or worse, always nominate these very knowledgeable policy wonk types, and she's the wonkiest of the wonks. They all said that. They all said, you know, she just she just knows this stuff at such a detail level, and she cares about it. So with any issue, wherever you start, you know, there's, I think there's always a tendency to say, oh, this is so-and-so's advisor, and it's how you kind of you know, understand. Well, everyone would say, no, no, you need to start with her, because she really does. I mean, she's got her she, her, she is her own most important counsel on this stuff. So you start there. And if you're going to talk about her advisors, you start with her actual campaign organization. She has a policy team, right? An actual team that's sort of providing, channeling, giving her the briefings, you know, setting up her meetings. And, you know, the one who's, when they have conversations about how to craft a policy, then they're the ones who actually go out and do the detail work of this is what we want to do. The most important person in that office is Jake Sullivan, who's the, the, he has a title of senior policy advisor, and there are three of them. The other two are Maya Harris and Jacob uh, Liebenluft, and they're all influential, but he's kind of the, the one who runs it. And, you know, and he was with her at the State Department, and he's very, very close with her. In addition to that, within the campaign, you have the campaign chairman, John Podesta. Now, he runs the campaign, and he's very much a politics guy, but you know, you know John Podesta, anyone who knows John Podesta, he's a pretty wonky guy himself. Particularly on climate, right? I mean, that's an yeah. issue. You know, he's very so. So he's important. There was a one more senior policy advisor named Anne O'Leary. Now, Anne, two months ago now, formally left the campaign to head up the transition operation. And it's one of these complicated things that goes on in, in, in presidential campaigns. But now there's a provision where, as you get close to the election, the major candidates are allowed to set up a transition office. It doesn't mean they're sort of counting their chickens before they hatch or anything. I mean, both Trump's got one, too. The idea is they want that if they want it, they want to set the law sets it up so that when a candidate, if they win the election, that the very next day they already are sort of starting to prepare for sort of, you know, all the jobs they have to fill and all the all the everything that has to get done before they even start on January 20th. So she ran. She left the campaign to go work there. So officially, there's kind of like a firewall there. She doesn't really speak for the campaign anymore. And she has certain, you know, she doesn't contact them, but she is a very important advisor. And Anne has been around Hillary Clinton since the days of the Clinton White House, the Bill Clinton White House. Um, so she's very important. And then you get to sort of a, a group of people, a kind of immediate orbit of people who are not formally on the campaign, but clearly have a lot of influence with them. You know, the one that everyone talks about who's the most obvious is Neera Tandon, who I know you've interviewed. Uh, Neera is the president of the Center for American Progress, which for people listening to this podcast is, I, you know, I would just sort of describe it as the sort of intellectual policy arm of the Democratic Party, right? The Democratic establishment. And it was actually set up by John Podesta originally. And she's now president of CAP. But, you know, she's someone who also has this long history with Hillary going back to the 1990s and was working on the 2008 campaign, then went on to work in the Obama White House. And now she's running CAP. And, you know, there's a group of people like Nira. She's the one that I think sort of comes first to mind who influence her. And then, you know, there's this much broader world of academics who I think like Bill Clinton Hillary has her kind of, you know, academics who she talks to from time to time and who are influencing her. And, you know, if you're reading tea leaves, it's kind of interesting. You look at the people who are advising her, you know, people like Joe Stiglitz, who I think, you know, a lot of progressives, you know, think of as a very, you know, influential and important figure in progressive economics right now. So people like that are also influential. That's interesting. I always wonder how influential that group is. So so your impression is that Stiglitz actually is structuring some important tributaries of their economic policy. 
I would say it's influential in two ways. That first of all, this is a campaign that actually reads research and reads writing and is influenced by it. So, I mean, he is someone who's generally... What, and you're saying the Trump campaign is not? <laughs> Sorry, well, they read something, right? Um, Who knows? Stiglitz's work over the years, I think, has influenced all of them. But I also think, you know, the role of that clash of people, Joe Stiglitz, uh, organizations like the Roosevelt Institute, the Economic Policy Institute, which are thought of as, you know, sort of on the progressive end of the liberal intellectual spectrum. Um, I don't want to say these places have a veto. I don't. And they don't. No one has a veto. Well, Elizabeth Warren probably has a veto, but we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> I think these are places that are part of the conversation. And I think when they are crafting policy, and by that I mean, okay, we're going to come out with a new proposal, or more frequently these days, we're going to give a speech on X. This language, does this sound? What is it? How, how do you react to this language? You know, they're having their temperature taken on things. And I think they use them as a kind of reality check to kind of moor them to where they want to be. If that makes any sense. The reason I, I pushed on that is that it often seems to me that there is a, a core around Hillary Clinton who are, are helping her make and, and structure policy. And then they have a political process, which is actually interesting and they're very good at it, where they will go and get validators on board for whatever constituencies they're trying to reach. And they are extremely good at getting a lot of interest groups and dignitaries and folks of that nature to sign on so that when the policy comes out, it's got a, little, a lot of little things in it, in part because to get some of these groups on, you need to give them a little thing in there. But it also has a, a broad coalition behind it. And I, I think of this process actually pretty important to both sort of the upsides and the downsides of Hillary Clinton, that a lot of this is why often I think her policies can seem, and particularly her policy speeches, do not seem as sharp as some other politicians do, because they've had to sand off the edges and add in a lot more stuff to create the broad coalition they want. On the other hand, creating a broad coalition is how you get things done in the presidency. I mean, it's a very important skill, arguably a much more important skill than being able to give thrilling speeches about, about public policy. But what I've never really known for sure is how, how actually influential that process is in changing the, the policy, how much those people are sort of – they're consulted in a pro forma way and then you know the, the campaign will add a little bit or take a little bit out or make sure their thing gets a call out in the speech – Versus how much you know Hillary Clinton is really sitting down and, and learning from Joe Stiglitz. Versus how much Jake Sullivan is spending a lot of time, you know, digging into the guts of whatever it is with the opioid treatment network or or, or whoever would be the, the key folks there. Because that, on the one hand, you would get a lot of information, but it could become very unwieldy. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure I actually know the answer to it either. And it's funny, I'm not sure the people advising know the answer. You know, there was a great article. Over the summer, which I mentioned the piece by Jim Tankersley, the Washington Post, who did a kind of here's how Hillary Clinton constructed her agenda. And he kind of had a kind of did one of the early kind of here are all the advisors in her world. And one of the funny things I remember from that article was there was a line in there about how the advisors themselves aren't sure how much influence they're having. They don't know. You know, they don't the ones who you talk to all of them and they're never sure, like, was I the one who influenced this or was I not the one who influenced, you know, and, and they can't always tell. And, you know, I'm sure there, there's a lot of everything going on here, by which I mean, I think it is true that some of this is pro forma. I think some of this is just lining up interest groups. And I think it does end up, you know, it does end up adding layers of complexity to everything she proposes. Because like, well, if you do this, you get, you know, you get the unions on board, you do this, you know, we'll get this sort of group of people to say nice things about it. And on the other hand, I also think they do listen. And I think, you know, there is a kind of sense that 
whether you're talking about academic experts or interest groups or practitioners, that you know they actually can learn. I mean, they talk about about this a lot with the mental health agenda and the and the addiction agenda as a place where they really listened. Criminal justice too, where they really feel like they needed to learn a lot, and so they turned to people who understood this, and they were able to sort of really use that to sort of craft their policies. I can't give you a definitive answer how much the sort of contact with this broader world of intellectuals and experts is actually shaping policy and to what, you know, to what extent are they kind of going to these people to get information that then they use to craft their policy and to what extent they're going to these people to get them on board with the policy, then they'll say nice things about it. I do think, however, one, one reason it's fuzzy is that at this point, there's a remarkable degree of consensus right now among liberals about this. So you're never, you know, it, it was easier in older campaigns, I feel like, to say, oh, they're taking X position to sort of choose this side in this debate. You could see, right? Because, you know, they took this position and you knew that certain people were in favor of it and certain people were against it. And in this campaign, I mean, there's just, yeah, not on every issue, but in general, uh, there, there's a fairly strong amount of consensus on most of the domestic policy at this point. Everyone is kind of saying the same thing. So it's hard to know who, who, who was influential and to what extent something started with the campaign and they're just getting outside validators and to what extent they are hearing something from the outside experts and then that shaped what they're saying in the campaign because they, they're kind of all in the same place anyway, if that makes any sense. So let me let's do a hard pivot here. You and I covered Obamacare for quite a while. The law has now good times, now, good times, good times. Oh, the best, the golden <laughs> age of American journalism. I think the law is in this kind of fascinating place right now. Where on the one hand, some parts of it are going very, very well. I mean, we saw in the latest census that we have really, really covered a lot of people in this country who didn't have health insurance before. And then there are parts of the law, and particularly geographical areas, where the insurance markets are not performing well, where there is a lot less competition in them than people hoped. We've seen some major players like United Health and Aetna pull out of the markets. It's clear there's a real vulnerability there. How would you describe where Obamacare is right now? What is your what is your top line view? You know, my top line view is that this is a law that is doing a lot of good and has parts that need a lot of work. It's a big, big project and big ambitious projects take a while to get right. You know, my bottom line is that like any measure, you know, I, you know, I think we both used to talk about when the law was being debated, it's going to, it's got stuff you like and stuff you don't like. And I kind of think about it in the same way that looking at the ledger now, there's stuff that's going well and there's stuff that's not going well. Personally, I think the side of the ledger of things that are going well, the sort of net benefit to society and to individuals strongly outweighs what's not going well. You know, I look at a positive ledger there, um, not to be so clinical about it, but, you know, to put it in more human terms, like I think there's like millions and millions of people who are much better off because of this law. And I think the country as a whole, the economy, its healthcare system is better off as a whole. But there are some real problems. And I do think, you know, I'm, you mentioned the geography point. I think that is a really important part of it. You know, we tend to talk about, and you've said this a million times, but, you know, we talk about Obamacare as if it's one program. Well, no, it's 51 programs, right? Because it plays out differently in every state. And even within states, it plays out differently in different parts. And so um, actually just this morning, there was a story in the Los Angeles Times by Noam Levy, who's a their, you know, their excellent healthcare reporter, sort of making the point that, you know, 
California, they don't think Obamacare has you know, got all these problems because it's working really well, which is not to say it's working perfectly. And you can find plenty of people who are unhappy with insurance there. And there's this issue and that issue. But overall, like it's a success story. It looks good, much the way Massachusetts did before the law passed. But then you go to other states and they are having real problems. And, and, you know, and that is a function of the fact that this law, you know, by design, for better or for worse, was meant to give uh, states a lot of authority over how to implement it. And every state is different demographically, and it has a different healthcare market. And so you do see the story playing out in very different ways in different parts of the country. I would say it's working with problems. And, you know, I think the issue in the campaign, what has always been is you can sort of look at that and you can say, well, what are your options here? You can, you know, you can do nothing. And then I think if you do nothing, what happens? Well, it'll probably continue to work in, well in some places and not well in other places. You can say, well, we can figure out what's not working and try to fix it and try to improve it so that the places that aren't working as well, you know, they can look, you know, so that a state like Arizona, where they seem to be having problems right now, what do we do to get Arizona to look more like California? You know, what can we learn from California? Maybe we can't, there's some things you can't transfer because it's such a different state. All right, well, what else do you do in Arizona? Or, you know, you can do the Donald Trump approach, which is, oh, let's just get rid of it and turn back the clock. And I know they say- Oh, he's going to come out with his replacement plan any day. Any day, any day, right? <laughs> Actually, you know, I will say this, you know, the House Republicans did finally, you know, put their, you know, Paul Ryan did finally kind of put his name behind this on something that was more than talking points. I mean, it's still pretty vague, but at least, you know, they kind of are starting to kind of come around to something. So that's a little bit of progress. But yeah, but right, it's been what, you know, how many years now? You know, my colleague, Jeff Young, had this thing, you know, he called, he did this every time that, you know, he was keeping a running list called, you know, of every single time they promised they'd have their Obamacare alternative and just, they never did. And, you know, Donald Trump doesn't care about it. So I don't, I don't think Donald Trump even knows enough about how, the healthcare system works pre or post Obamacare to have a fixed sense of what he no, wants he, to do. He, he's a he's a very sketchy, and I mean sketchy in the sense of very poorly sketched plan. That I am a hundred percent sure that if you asked him to describe it, he would have no idea how to. That, right. that he, I don't, I don't, I do not believe he has read this plan. It has nothing to do with anything he says on the stump about healthcare. It's just like if you took a really janky version of some of the conservative things you've seen before and put them together in a way that didn't make sense. But I, I want to uh, pick up on two threads in, in what you're saying. One is I do think this is such a hard part about talking about Obamacare that there are 51 markets, including the district, and. Even within that, there are counties that work very differently from each other, right? So if you're in California, there are a lot of different county-level markets and what the choices you're getting and how the market is functioning in San Francisco and in Los Angeles and in Redlands can all be really different. And so I think it's created this very difficult discourse around it where we, we have this word Obamacare that seems to refer to a single thing, but actually doing the program that has a gigantic Medicaid component has 51 of the marketplaces uh, organizations and then many more individual marketplaces in that. And the answer, some things are going real well and some things aren't. I mean, even within the marketplaces. The part of this, it scares me a little bit. And, and I think that you could say this was predictable and, and certainly by the end, it probably was. But for Obamacare and for everything, non-iterative policymaking is really dangerous. I mean, I think Vox is a much less complex organization than Obamacare. And I think of how much we have changed, like really changed since we launched and as we learned what the market wanted and what people needed and what worked and what didn't. And we've been able to make those those changes. And I think it has gotten a lot harder in politics with the level of just gridlock and paralysis and bad feeling in Congress to do just basic maintenance of the country's large policy architecture. 
And I think that's actually a real problem. And it's a problem across a lot of different bills. I mean, we waited long past the time when No Child Left Behind had completely broken down to do an update of the No Child Left Behind framework. I mean, we had, you know, we were doing crazy waivers and it was clear that that had needed to be updated long ago. And I think that we have gotten to a place where because the two parties increasingly don't agree on the legislation when it is being passed, there is no move then to say, well, well, it's passed. Let's let's work on it together now. It is still the same kind of political football later. And if the test of statute is that we want to be able to do complicated things that never need to be changed or updated, that seems really dangerous to me. The other way you can go, obviously, is you can use in these statutes, you can just give the executive branch much more power, which I think is probably the direction we're going in, right? Obamacare could have been a couple lines where it says we're given the Department of Health and Human Services a trillion dollars over 10 years to cover as many people as it possibly can with health insurance. And then they can you know, make a lot of updates within that. But it, it seems to me if I were advising someone on how to write legislation now watching this, I'd say just give all the power to the bureaucrats as much as you can, which is not a very democratically accountable way of doing legislation, but is potentially better than one within the kind of situation we're in where it's clear that you need to revisit the statute, not just now, but you'll have to do it again in two years and do it again in five Nobody even begins to think that's possible. And and even Hillary Clinton has done her Obamacare plans, at least as of a couple months ago, were very thin on the ground because she knows she's not going to touch this and it, it doesn't feel to her like there is much upside. But I think that's bad. I think that I think that we we have developed a policymaking process amidst polarization that we know is not going to function well. Yeah, no, it's terrible. I mean, and Obamacare is, is, is a perfect example of this, right? Because the law's strongest supporters would agree. Okay, here there's a list of things that aren't working in it right now, and we should figure out how to fix those. And it is not difficult to imagine, not all difficult to imagine, how in a sort of in a functional political environment where you had cooperation, Democrats and Republicans getting together, and you know, and saying, and saying, look, here's sort of a kind of list of liberal changes to the law we'd like to make, and here's a list of conservative ones. Pick two from column A and two from column B. They can probably find the money without too much trouble. I mean, in, in, in a normal political environment, not the one we have now. And a lot of what needs to be fixed here doesn't require money, I would say. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. And it just requires a little good faith of saying, you know, yes, we want to work on this. And it's frustrating because you can't have that conversation right now. It's impossible. I mean, you know, I scour the news for the, there was, a, I think Lamar Alexander made a comment. Listen to Lamar Alexander, I forget now, like three weeks ago, there was a little story in the post or in the Hill or roll call, you know, saying, well, you know, we need to sort of admit that, a, you know, Affordable Care Act is the law and we need to just start dealing with it. And I kind of took that as a signal that like, well, he's on board with, you know, kind of moving past the repeal debate. But, you know, you just can't have that conversation. To me, if I were a Republican, I understand the dynamics. I understand the, you know, the, how important this is to the base, but I don't think this is a productive political cycle for Republicans either. I mean, to me, yeah. I look at the politics of the ACA. I think it's kind of bad for both parties. Each party can kind of gin up its base with it. But overall, like, it's not like Democrats are going to, you know, at the moment can really sort of make, you know, championing this law their campaign mantra. Conversely, I don't think Republicans can make repealing it their mantra because that's not very popular either. You know, they, they can't go anywhere with that. You know, it's interesting you brought up the states because actually, as you know, I mean, there are these state, you know, actually the law, you know, Affordable Care Act actually does give, you know, sort of states, you know, a fair amount of leeway if they want to use it. I mean, that's the other thing I've sort of haven't understood is, you know, we've seen this happen a little bit at the, in terms of the Medicaid part of the law. But, you know, if I were a conservative, 
and I were, you know, looking at the future, I say, well, I'm not going to be able to repeal this. I would be going to a state where I knew conservatives, you know, where Republicans control the legislature. And I'd say, all right, let's come up with our ideal vision of conservative health care reform that looks different from the ACA in whatever ways we want it to look different. And let's try to kind of get, you know, let's try to get approval to do it differently. In the same way that if I were, you know, I think liberals have tried to do that and try to get single payer, at, you know, at the state level. And that's not out of the question. We've seen the Obama administration has shown a lot of flexibility on Medicaid waivers, more than, frankly, I think a lot of liberals would prefer. And I don't understand why conservatives aren't doing that, but I suspect it's for the same reason that they don't sit down in Congress and talk to Democrats, say, all right, let's let's pass the, you know, Obamacare improvement bill or the healthcare improvement bill that sort of changes the program in the following ways. And I it's 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 a shame because like you said, laws don't, you know, they're not meant to be static. I mean, they're meant to be adapted over time. And certainly you're gonna expect surprises. And if we can't react to them, then we're all really kind of screwed here. You know, something that I I think is interesting there, well, two things. One, about the idea of Republicans using state labs. I I think one of the real things you've seen is just that healthcare reform, this part of it, health insurance reform, is just not the reason most Republicans get into politics. There's just like an actual just intensity gap. I I was thinking about this reading Phil Klein, who's a conservative writer who focuses on healthcare, a good book about conservative healthcare reform. And the main thing I think you could read into that and and take away from it is there are some conservative health wonks who really care about this stuff, but it is not an animating issue. And the reason that you don't get things like a real replace plan is that Republicans do not care enough about it to be willing to pay the price of really getting involved in it. As long as you stay at 30,000 feet, you can always just say, I'm going to do something better. When you start having to make the trade-offs down deep, you begin to piss people off. And that is fine. And Republicans are willing to piss people off for things they really care about. They're willing to, they take an enormous amount of political damage to not raise taxes on rich people. I mean, they are willing to take an almost endless amount of political damage to abide by that principle. But health reform, I think, doesn't – it doesn't attain that level for them. Uh, That said, I kind of disagree with your take on on, on the politics here. I don't think this is equally – bad for both parties. And I think that if Republicans had run a more normal candidate, a Marco Rubio say, they would be able to exploit at least some of the flaws that are evident in Obamacare right now more successfully than they have. But the way in which I think it's long-term bad for Republicans is the particular part of Obamacare that is struggling is actually the part that they, they will not ever say they like it, but they do. What Paul Ryan wants to do is create Obamacare-like insurance marketplaces in Medicare. Like that is his plan. He wants to create make Medicare into something that has very similar exchanges, private options, et cetera, et cetera. If you were looking at Obamacare, you would never say right now, well, let's gamble and move the entire Medicare structure to an insurance marketplace model. That is the thing that is too tough. It makes you very, very reliant on private insurers and their profitability and their business models and their good graces and where they feel like they can compete and where they can't. It just wouldn't work. So I I do think one thing Republicans, if they ever do revisit healthcare, are going to have to sort of think through is that, you know, I think if you're looking at Obamacare, it is really strengthened the case for something like single payer. Medicaid, where we've expanded it, just works. You just more people than expected went onto it. You know, it's pretty straightforward. The government can run it. There's no huge problem. But this sort of public-private partnership with managed competition between a lot of different insurers who are held together by regulation but lured in because of the promise of profits, which may or may not ultimately be there, 
that's really been the Republican idea for what to do with Medicare. Occasionally, it's part of the Republican idea for what to do with Medicaid. And I think that idea is suffering. And it's taken a one reason I think you see very little in the way of, of really serious replace plans is that Obamacare actually did include a lot of broad stroke ideas, even if there were differences in the particulars from things Republicans had been supportive of. But either because of the stance of total opposition or because of you know the actual issues in the law, a lot of those ideas are coming out with having taken a lot of fire. And I don't think Republicans have an answer for that. But if you were really Paul Ryan and you, you became president and you wanted to implement your Medicare plan, people are going to point at Obamacare and say, what the hell do you think you're doing? You're, you're going to implement that part of Obamacare? Yeah. No, I mean, long term, this has always been the problem for Republicans is that Obamacare is basically marrying in a lot of ways, right? It's marrying the liberal goal of universal health coverage to the conservative mechanism of market, free market insurance. That's not like that is not an easy combination to, to make work. It can work and, you know, you know, or it can work reasonably well, but it's not easy. And, you know, it's one of the many cases where you sort of look at the Republican opposition to this and, and you're like, you know, really, this is what you guys are opposed to? This is your idea? I mean, there's another aspect of, I mean, it drives me nuts just as, as I kind of like, it just sort of, exa- I find it exasperating. But, you know, if you listen to conservatives, a lot of the complaints about Obamacare, one of the things you hear, oh, it's a terrible law. Everyone's deductibles are going up and everyone has to pay more out of pocket costs, right? You've heard, well, conservatives have spent like 30 years, like, you know, praising high deductible plans and, and sort of articulating a vision of healthcare where insurance covers less, much less, and everybody has to pay more out of pocket. And now, and, and there's a theory for this, right? Which is that, you know, if you have to pay more of your bills out of pocket and you have more skin in the game, as they say, you know, you'll be more responsible about your healthcare spending. And by the way, not a crazy theory. A lot of economists would argue, it's a lot of liberal economists think that you do it. If you can do that in a kind of measured way, it'll make the healthcare system better. And that's partly why you see that as part of what's happening with Obamacare. But, you know, here they are, conservatives swinging away at this. And I keep thinking, you guys really want to, like, you know, be arguing, you know, that 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 is bad for people to have high deductibles? Because, like, that's your idea. <laughs> you know, you right. can regret that. And in the same way that, as you say, if their plan was to, to get Medicare into more of a market a free market model where people are choosing from among insurance companies. They don't want to be talking about how, you know, this model can't work, but that is the position they they find themselves in. So on a long term, yeah, I do think it's self-defeating for Republicans. And I think it's self-defeating for Republicans for, for a simpler reason as well, which is that repealing Obamacare sounds good, not just to Republican voters. There's plenty of non-Republicans who don't like the law. It sounds great at 30,000 feet, as you say, but you know, you take the next step and you start describing what it means and everyone, you know, everyone suddenly realizes what they will lose. Yep. Not, you know, not, not such a great idea. Yeah. Like the, the, literally the Republican plan right now is if you like your health care plan, you can't keep it. Literally, right? right? You, you, do, you do not want to get into that into that fight on the scale that – I mean, Obamacare is covering a couple uh, – the, the amount of insurance that actually relies on it, either directly or indirectly, is now probably in the 20 to 30 million range. Canceling that many health care plans is a very tough thing to do in American politics. Yeah, a lot of them in red states, right? I mean, yeah. uh, Texas, uh, Florida, that's a lot of people. Florida's not a red state, but you know, that's a lot of people. You know, and look, we've seen that already, right? We saw that in Kentucky where Governor Bevin came in and, you know, Mr., you know, uh, you know, he's a Tea Party guy. We're going to get rid of Obamacare. We're going to now, of course, he couldn't get rid of the law, but he could he could he could pull Kentucky out of the Medicaid expansion portion of the law. And that's what he originally said he was going to do. And lo and behold, he gets into office and he started kind of hinting this before he got into office towards the end of the campaign. He's like, well, 
we don't want to take it all away, you know. Why? Because there's hundreds of thousands of people in Kentucky getting insurance through the Medicaid expansion. And by the way, it's working well. And so, you know, he's sort of retreated. And now his thing is, well, I want to change the program so it has some, it's got a more conservative model. The Medicaid expansion can in, in, in Kentucky has a more conservative model, similar to what actually Mike Pence did in Indiana. And now he's negotiating with, with, with the federal government over that. But, you know, did he, you know, here was a chance. He, he, he could have done it. He had, the, he had the power to end Kentucky's Medicaid expansion, and he didn't. And that, that tells you something. Uh, that actually, it's how I think ultimately this political fight will end. At this point, a party of Hillary Clinton wins the presidency. You're not going to repeal Obamacare 12 years after it passed. It's just it's not going to happen. And so there will be eventually another Republican elected to the presidency. Let's say Paul Ryan wins in 2020 after running against Hillary Clinton, who is suffering from you know a recession that can happen whenever. At that point, the person you are going to be negotiating with, if you're a conservative state that sees there's money here and wants to do something, is a Republican president. And policy reforms that go in a conservative direction are something you can jointly take credit for. And so I think that it will have to be that kind of constellation of political power that finally allows Republicans to engage on it in their own states much more productively because – they're just going to have to, right? They're going to want their marketplaces working well. They're going to want Medicaid money if they are entitled to it. But it's really fouled up, right? If people call it Obamacare, you are negotiating with Barack Obama. You know that Democrats can run on it. But if it was a president of your party being able to take credit for the reforms and you're way outside the window, as I think we already are repealing it, then you know I think ultimately the the pressures to make changes and call them wins for yourself will will, will be a lot higher. I think that's right. I think that's certainly true for 2020. I, sh- I should mention my predictions about how the fights over Obamacare will go have been almost entirely wrong. So <laughs> I'm not sure anybody should listen to me. But I think what you say about, you know, sort of imagining a 2020 scenario, with, you know, Paul Ryan becoming president, you know, when it comes to like how this election would come out, I kind of, I, I, I don't know. I like, there part of me feels like we're all, like you said, we're already at the place we're pulling the wiring out and repealing this is functionally impossible. Lots of people make that argument. It's just, you're not, they're not really going to take insurance away from all these people. What they would end up doing is they'd end up passing some changes to it that, you know, they would be meaningful and, you know, someone liberals would be upset about them and people would, who depend on healthcare would be worse off, but they wouldn't just yank the whole thing out. And that's possible. I've heard the opposite argument. You know, I have heard the argument that no, this has become so central to their identity. They really would do it. And if they had to, in the same way that Democrats at the end of the day were willing to pass the Affordable Care Act, even though maybe, you know, some of them, you know, thought that they were, you know, there might be a political uh, downside to it. They did it anyway. You'd have Republicans doing it anyway. They'd sell it as, as a tax cut, right? You know, they'd figure out some way to make it sort of that, like there were some winners who, because after all, there are a lot of taxes in the Affordable Care Act and they all fall on the rich. So maybe, you know, you, you, you sort of, pass it as a tax. You take that money and you give it back as some kind of tax cut and you don't give it all back to the rich. You give some to the middle class. So they feel like they're benefiting. And, you know, it's not crazy to imagine they would actually do it. I don't, you know, it wouldn't be easy. And, and, and I think everything you say about this sort of disruption is true. So I, I tend to think that would, that would be scary. 
And who the heck knows what Trump would really do, right? I mean, I, I don't know. You know, he's all he's over. He's going to give everybody health care and make sure the government pays for it, as he right. said in in the debates. Right. I mean, you know, he's been you know <laughs> relatively recently talking, sounding like someone like single payer. So you, we can't be sure. You know what Trump would do. Although I always sort of say to people, I mean, Trump's going to you know if the House it's January two thousand seventeen, and the House votes to repeal Obamacare, the Senate votes to repeal Obamacare, the bill comes to his desk. Is he really going to veto it? Maybe. Who knows? But I mean, the point is, I think without knowing what would happen for sure, I feel comfortable saying that it's a possibility. And so I think certainly more of a possibility than in 2020, when, by the way, Obamacare, it's Obamacare, but you know, Obama, he's four years past office and, and we're well into the glowing period of his historical legacy when, you know, the name Obama by itself is suddenly looked back fondly as, you know, a kind of, you know, oh, those were the good old days. So I've taken up a bunch of your time here. I'm really grateful for it. You are a an author yourself. You had a great book on the pre Obamacare healthcare market called Sick, which I recommend people read. What which, are, you, what are th- which you read a chapter of while I was working on, and I was very grateful. That's true. Uh, what are three books that you recommend to people? What are three books that have influenced the way you look at the world and and you think the audience should read? Can they be old books? Do they, have to be they, can, books? they can be. They can be any book one can get their hands on. Okay. So my favorite book ever. And it's a journalist book, and it's partly it's 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 much a book about journalism. No, it's not a book about journalism, but I like it for the quality of its journalism, as well as for what it reveals. Is a book called Common Ground, which is from about the busing crisis in Boston in the 1970s, and it was written by an author named J. Anthony Lucas, who died a while back, uh, but won the Pulitzer for this book. And he basically he basically embedded himself with three families. And spent seven years writing this because it's a book about race and class in Boston in the late 1970s. And I was actually just thinking about how the issue itself feels very dated, but the themes of the book are so powerful and relevant today. And it's a wonderful book, too. And as a journalist, I love that book because he doesn't ever tell you his opinion in that book. He just sort of, he's just a, a fly on the wall and just sort of spinning out this, this story. But it's such a wonderful book. It has such a kind of clear message, clear set of messages to it, even though he doesn't have to tell you. And it's, it's a wonderful book. So I'd recommend that. Also, I'm, you know, I, I lived in Boston for a long time and I, I just am fascinated by Boston. It's an interesting place. So we've been talking about healthcare and I feel like everybody who, if you're interested in healthcare, this sort of book you have to read is The Social Transformation of American Medicine by Paul Starr, which yeah. is like, you know, the definitive history of, of American healthcare. And then Behind the Beautiful Forevers by Kate Boo. Which, oh, that book is so good. Yeah, I just throw it off topic. I mean, nothing to do with anything I write about. I don't do foreign policy, but such an, again, actually similar in style to Tony Lucas's book, Common Ground, but just such a rich and powerful portrait of the developing world. And it just, I just, I don't know. I just think it's a great book and everyone should read it. So there you go. These are, I, I have read these books and these are possibly due to your and my very similar interests. These are great books. People should read them. Uh, Jonathan Cohen, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, the time. It's good to talk to you. Hey, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you to John. Thank you to all of you for sticking around. To my producer, AC Valdez, the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production. And it will be back with more interviewing by Ezra Klein next week.